We have been in this thankful campaign, and I can say we because I've been able to check up uh, on you from Luton via YouTube, and I have the privilege today of closing out your thankful campaign. So what I want to talk about today isn't so much a sermon or a preach I'm going to teach you, is that okay? I'm going to take you to Bible college, and I know it is bank holiday weekend, and you don't want something too heavy. I promise you there is a lot of information, but it will be worth it. What I want to talk to you about today is exploring the reality of heaven, exploring the reality of heaven. Now, much of our conception of what heaven is today, even if you ask the average Christian, is far more shaped by 17th century Renaissance art or Hollywood. We think of angels with harps and clouds. We think of a never-ending Chinese buffet where you never get fat. We think of every Netflix series available. You don't have to wait a week for the next one. This is what we think of about heaven. But what I want to do today is rather than talk about our conception of what we think heaven is, without the traditions, without the mythologies, without all the things that have attached themselves to the Bible over the years, the century, and the millennia, is just go really back to basics. And when I say basics, I mean the Bible to see what the Bible says about heaven itself. Now, heaven is a very complex thing. And so often when we approach the Bible, we look for things that we want to see, but it says tantalizingly little. Have you ever done that? Maybe you've gone into science class and opened the Bible up at Genesis 1 to try and explain creation. And as you're speaking it, you're getting yourself more confused as you're trying to speak to the people about what creation is. Now, the problem with the Bible as we approach it is we so often approach it with our filter of 21st century brains. And what we need to understand whenever we approach the Bible, although it was written for us, it wasn't written to us. I'll say that again. Although it was written for us throughout millennia, it wasn't written to us. You see, every book of the Bible, all 66, which spans about 1,500 years, were written to specific people in a specific time. And every translation we have of the Bible is at some point an interpretation. If you are bilingual, if you speak French or Spanish or Italian, you will know that even as you're directly translating things, you're also interpreting it. And this becomes even harder when we go to ancient languages, namely Hebrew, Aramaic, and Koine Greek. So that all sounds very confusing, but stick with me because I hope I can help you a little bit. So when we look at heaven, much of our preaching today, and probably for the last century, has been about getting people into heaven. We have made this the point of faith. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, for whoever believes in the Son, God's soul of the world, whoever believes in the Son, will have eternal life. We've made this our lynch point. And I want to tell you, eternal life does mean eternal life, but it doesn't mean eternal bodies. At least not yet. You see, you will have moments in your life, and maybe if you're under 18 or you're young, you don't think so much about your mortality or even death. But maybe when grandma gets sick or there's a doctor's diagnosis, unawares from a friend, suddenly we get that pang in our chest where we are forced to consider our own mortality. And it's because of this I want to talk to you today as a Jesus follower about what we can expect and be thankful for in our eternal future. Is that okay? So to begin, we need to start at the very beginning, as Julie Andrews would say. It's a very good place to start. 
God's original plan. And if you're a note taker, I would encourage you to take notes and I can send my slides as well because we will literally be going from Genesis to Revelation. We're here about four and a half hours, so get comfortable. And if you do want to go to heaven, I used to say this in Northampton a lot, note takers get to skip the queue and go right to the front. So if you take notes, you're, you're happy. But let me talk to you about God's original plan. As I said, we have made heaven the point of our faith. Getting past those pearly gates, getting in, that is the goal we have made our faith about. But this wasn't God's original plan. As we go back to the very beginning, Genesis 1 verse 26 and 27, it says this. Then God said, after all of creation, let us make man in our image. The Hebrew word there is salem, it's an important word. According to our likeness, and let them have dominion. That means let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, that's Salim Elohim. He created them, male and female, he created them. Now when we think of images, we think of our iPhones taking a picture But this word Salim would have a very specific meaning to all the ancient readers who would read this, not just the Hebrews. You see, Salim or image can also be translated and is better translated idol. So when we read about all these Old Testament gods through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we read about Asherah and Baal, they all had Salims in their temple, images, idols. And what these idols would do, whether they were made of bronze or wood or iron, they would represent an invisible God. Now here's what's really important. We know the Hebrew people, and indeed us as Christians, are different from those people. The Ten Commandments, you shall have no idols. But what's really important here is that God said we were made in his image. Salim Elohim, in the image of God, he made us. You see, what the writer is trying to communicate to us here is we are the visible representation of God here on earth. We're not made of wood, we're living and breathing, but we were sent into creation, beginning with Adam and Eve, to have dominion and to be God's representatives here on earth. And God, of course, wasn't bowed by a temple. The cosmos was his temple. And he planted a man called Adam and a lady called Eve in a garden and told them to have dominion. And it was going so well. Genesis 1 into Genesis 2. He gave Adam and Eve a job. He had to name animals, giraffes and hippopotamuses. And for some reason, they called something a platypus. And they started naming all these creatures. And then Genesis 2 goes into Genesis 3. And many of you will know it all went wrong. God's original plan was thwarted. Now, here's what we need to understand. If Genesis 3 hadn't have happened, Adam and Eve, and therefore us as their descendants, wouldn't have been stuck in the Garden of Eden. You see, God's commission to us, we talk about the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 28 to 30. God's first commission was that we would be here on earth and have dominion. He created a little patch called Eden, and what he wanted humanity to do was pick up the picket fence at the edge of it and take dominion of the rest of the world. You see, God could have done that in an instant, but because we were made in his image, he wanted us to take that picket fence and expand it over millennia and generation. He wanted Eden to cover the earth, but sin entered the equation. And we know many of us, it messed up for Adam and Eve and therefore us. But it didn't just mess up Adam and Eve, it actually messed up the whole of creation. 
Sin didn't just enter humanity, it entered creation, it entered the garden, they were kicked out and they were, fought, uh, they were left to fend for themselves. So what I want to communicate to you this morning is God's original plan never changed. Heaven at the beginning where God was and earth was always meant to be one. God walked with Adam and Eve, but sin put a wedge right in the middle of it and caused us to separate. And God's plan right from Genesis 1 and 2 all the way to Revelation 21 and 22 is God's history or his story of getting back to Genesis 1 and 2. You see, where we've made heaven the point of faith, the point of faith is that we would have relationship with God and live with him forever. But that wasn't supposed to be in heaven. So I'll say it like this. Heaven is not the point of faith, it is simply a part of faith. When we focus all our preaching and communication on heaven, what we're doing is we're focusing on harmony. Much like Erica was singing as Dawn led. It's part of it, but the point of it is the melody, the tune of it is relationship with God. So as we begin today, this is how I want to define heaven. Heaven is the place where the believer in Jesus will go after death to be present with God. It's the, pay attention to this and write it down, the intermediate state before and until the final resurrection of our bodies in the new heaven and new earth. What God wants to do is recreate Eden, which happens in Revelation 21 and 22. And we are just caught in the middle. History is a big diversion to that. Now, here's what's really important about heaven. It's an intermediate state. What does intermediate mean? It means between. So what I'm essentially saying is heaven is like a really, really, really good travel lodge. A really good travel lodge. Or maybe we go even further and say it's a bit like a Hilton. It's an intermediate state. It's a place between. It is not our final destination. Our final destination is to do exactly what Adam and Eve did on walk with God in a new creation. So as I've talked to people over the years about heaven and done a lot of research myself just in the Bible, devoid of mythologies or tradition, there's seven frequently asked questions that I want to walk us through today that hopefully will be able to answer some of your questions. And if it doesn't, you can send me an email and I'll do my best to answer. But what happens when we die? And as I said, many of us have been faced with that thought that process, that question, particularly the last couple of years with COVID. And maybe recently you've had a doctor's bill that has worried you and you are uncertain about what happens after death. So let's talk about heaven, what it is, what it looks like, what we do there, what's in it, who's in it, and do we know the people, our wives, our spouses, our friends there? Is that okay? No? We can finish now if you want, that's fine. Okay, number one. What happens after I die? The millisecond after we breathe our last breath. And being a pastor, I often find myself in hospital rooms and, and beds. And I've done this a number of times with Mr. Keith Chant in my time, play, uh, my time learning here in Northampton. We visit hospital rooms and sat next to people who were breathing their last. If you've ever been in that situation, especially if that person is a follower of Jesus, you will know it is a highly spiritual moment. There's an atmosphere, it's tangible, there's something really holy taking place. But what happens after we breathe that last breath? Let's go to the Bible. First thing that I want to propose is after we die, we are immediately and consciously present with God 
in this place called heaven, this intermediate state. How do we know this? Well, the obvious verse comes from Jesus' lips himself as he's hung on the cross and there's a thief to his right and to his left. And one of the thieves mocks Jesus and he looks at him and he taunts him, but the other said, do you not know who this is? And he looks at Jesus, I can imagine his chest heaving, and he said, Jesus, when you enter your kingdom today, please remember me. And what does Jesus say? Luke 23, verse 43. He looks at the thief, probably with a big struggle as he's hung on the cross, and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, Jesus was the son of God. I don't think he said anything lightly. I know you've been in situations where you've said something or you've immediately wanted to take it back. I don't think Jesus suffered with this. And much of the Bible, especially when we talk about heaven, is allegory and it's metaphor. But when Jesus says today, the Greek word literally translates and is interpreted as today. I think we should pay attention with that. Paul talking to the Corinthian church says this. He said, I'd rather be away from my body at the moment because when I'm away from the body, I am at home with the Lord. And he says again to the church in Philippi, my desire is to depart this life and to be with Christ. So I believe these are a few verses, and there are more, that point to us being consciously and aware with Jesus. There's another verse in Hebrews 12.1. There's a whole chapter in Hebrews 11 talking about the heroes of the faith. And when it gets to chapter 12, it starts like this. So let us run with perseverance, throwing off all the sin that easily entangles us because we are surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses. And this made me prick up and pay attention because what this suggests and the intonation is, is that the people who have gone before us are not just conscious in heaven, they are also conscious of what we are doing here. Some of you are thinking about that last time you sinned and thought, oh my goodness, my grandma could have seen that. My granddad could have seen that. Now, he doesn't dig deep into this. And I think the reason the writer doesn't dig deep into this is because we could perhaps begin to start focusing our attention and praying to the dead. And that is strictly forbidden in the Bible. But that gives me some peace that those who've gone before us aren't just conscious with God, but they are maybe also conscious of what we're doing here. The writer goes on in Hebrews 12, 22 to 23. He says, when we worship, just like we've done now, we've sung worship coming together. You have come to God, the judge of all, in joyful assembly to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I love that picture. There's a thin, a thin veil here as we are stood with our hands lifted high, worshipping in the spiritual realm. Those who have gone before us are joining us in song. Let's hope they can hold their harmonies and sing. So what does this tell us? If we are immediately and consciously present with Jesus and with God in heaven, it means two things can't happen, two other popular viewpoints. One is purgatory. You may have heard purgatory. There's films about it. Uh, there's books about it. It is a Catholic doctrine. And if you've never heard of purgatory, all it is is a doctrine that after we die, we go to a holding place. So it's a place before the intermediate state where we have to wait to be further purified to be able to get into heaven because heaven is this perfect place. And purgatory, the doctrine has come from an obscure passage in the book of 2 Maccabees. And if you have heard of the Bible and the 66 books, you're probably thinking, well, I must have missed that one, 2 Maccabees. Well, 2 Maccabees isn't in our Bible. It is, however, in the Catholic Bible. You may not know there's 14 additional books in the Catholic Old Testament called the Apocrypha. It's a Greek word which literally means the hidden books. And 2 Maccabees 
it reads a little bit like Two Kings and Chronicles. It's a history. But this history takes place in the 400 years with the Old Testament ending and the New Testament beginning. Two Maccabees. And it chronicles and follows a family called the Maccabeans. And there was a man called Judas Maccabeus, and he's not a bad Judas, he's a good Judas, who led a revolt against a conquering king called Antiochus IV Epiphanes. I can't even say that word before 9am. Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He had come into Jerusalem and he had begun to sack it. And this family led by Judas Maccabees started to go up against this Hellenistic, that's a Greek king and its army, and defeated them. And in this book, in 2 Maccabees 12, verses 39 to 45, it talks about Judas Maccabees finding his Jewish dead. And as he went through their clothes and started collecting their personal belongings, they found little idols of Jamnia. And what Judas did, he was horrified that they had carried pagan idols. And he said, it's because of this they have died. And a verse in 2 Maccabees 12, 45 says this. So Judas started to pay and pray for their retribution. So the Catholic Church took this in the Middle Ages and said, right, if people have died sinful, what we can do, we can ask for money from their family and we can pray for those souls to be cleansed to go into heaven. Now, of course, as humans, we know straight away that's, uh, that, that's going to take the mick, isn't it? They're going to exploit people. And it's been a huge exploitation of people that we pray for the dead. Now, the main problem of this is purgatory. It says that we have to work for our salvation. It renders Jesus' work for us on the cross incomplete. If we can pay to make someone go to heaven, then why did Jesus die? Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not because of anything you've done, whether that's £10, £20, £50. It's because of Jesus you've been saved. So instantly that says to me, purgatory is rubbish. And I'm sorry if you're from a Catholic background, but it just doesn't make sense to me. The second popular viewpoint is this, soul sleep. That when we die, we go into a state of unconscious existence. We basically go for a really long nap. And this has been taken from a few verses in the Bible. Paul talks in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 14, about the dead who have gone to sleep. And Jesus himself, you remember Mary and Martha calling Jesus because Lazarus had died. Jesus is on his way back with his disciples, and he looks at his disciples and says, don't worry, Lazarus has gone to sleep. And the disciples are looking at Jesus and say, well, why are we rushing if he's just gone for a nap? And verse 12 and 13 says, guys, I'm trying to be kind and just you know, soften the blow. Lazarus is dead. But as I look through Scripture, and indeed the Scriptures we've just looked at, there's so much about the conscious existence after death. Sleep, I believe, used by Jesus and by Paul, is a metaphor for an intermediate state. It's a, it's a state of in-between. So when the Bible talks about believers going to sleep, it's talking about them being dead. Again, uh, Mark 5, verse 39, Jesus is going to Jairus' daughter's house. He comes to the door and he comes in and they say, teacher, you're too late, she's already dead. And what does Jesus say? Mark eleven thirty nine. 39, she's not dead, she's just asleep. And they laugh at him because she is dead. It's a metaphor. So I believe those verses we looked at shows us that we are consciously, in spirit, awake in heaven with Jesus until the final resurrection. Question two, what will heaven be like? What's there? What does it look like? 
And again, as we look through Revelation, there's loads and loads of imagery, gold streets and diamonds and gates made of pearl and onyx. The problem we have with Revelation and one with me who has an analytical mind, it does my head in, is we can't work out what is metaphorical and allegory and what is literal. Have you ever read the Bible and just feel like you've drank three bottles of whiskey, not that you would know what that feels like, and you're just doing your head in thinking, what on earth is going on here? So let's look at what we see in the Bible that we can literally take as heaven being like. And to do that, let's start with a very well-read and far more intelligent man than me, a man called Wayne Gruden. He's a theologian. He says this. Heaven is the place where God fully makes himself known, makes known his presence to bless, where he makes his glory known and where angels and other heavenly creatures and redeemed saints all worship him. Well, that really doesn't tell us much, Wayne, does it? We know we're going to worship God in heaven. It's all through the Bible. What does it look like? And this word is an important one. It's a Greek word, and it looks very weird and squiggly, but the translation of this is paradisos, paradisos. And if you're a scholar, you can probably work out it's the word that we translate paradise, paradisos. But what does paradise mean? Because a paradise to James could be very different to a paradise for Gloria and King, paradise. And this word is only used three times in the New Testament. In Luke 23 to 43, that verse we've already looked at where Jesus died and said, today you'll be with me in paradisos. In 2 Corinthians 12, 4, Paul talks about a man being caught up to the third heaven in the paradisos of God or the paradise of God. And again, in Revelation 2, 7, the word is used uh, for believers who go into God's paradise to eat from the tree of life just three times. Very interestingly, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Revelation 2, verse 8, when talking about Eden, it talks about the Garden of Eden. We translated it garden, but the Greek word is the paradisos. So to the original people who read this, what does paradisos mean? Well, if you've ever heard of the ancient wonders of the world, there were seven of them. One of those ancient wonders was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It was meant to be absolutely stunning and beautiful. It was called a paradisos. A paradisos to a Greek literally means a pleasure garden. And the same word in Hebrew means a beautiful forest where beasts roam free. So when we see this word paradise in the Bible, it's talking about a beautiful garden-like place. It's a place where there's colours that you will never be able to imagine. A place where every tree grows freely and healthily. There is nothing that can hurt you or harm you. What else do we see in the New Testament? We see heaven is where God is presently manifest. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he said to pray to our Father in heaven. It's where God is manifestly present. We know God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. He is everywhere, all powerful, all seeing and all knowing. But heaven is the place where he is manifestly present. We see this in the Bible with Moses where he could only look at his back. We know that Jesus is there and Jesus isn't there like Casper the friendly ghost. He is there in a resurrected body. We know there's a throne room there where God is sat on a throne. And we know God is worshipped there, not just by angels, but also by people. We know it is the abode or the dwelling place of angels. We see this uh, most dramatically in Job 1, where there's a godly council. We know that there are believers from every tribe, tongue and nation worship there. Even people from Wellingborough are in heaven. 
We know that Jesus has prepared a place for us there. And I'll take a little word study on this. There's a beautiful couple of verses in John 14, verse 1, 2, and 3. And as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, look, you're going to come with me soon to paradisos, to heaven. You're going to come with me to the place where my Father has prepared for us. And then there's this little word that we translate in the New International Version as room. He says, in my Father's house there are many rooms. And I got a little bit disappointed with that because in, in, in Sunday school, back in Birmingham, and indeed I think in Sunday school here, my kids were taught that we didn't get a room in heaven, we got a mansion. Why do we just get a room? Well, really interestingly, if you look at the King James Version, if you can understand it, I can't unfortunately, or the ASV, the American Standard Version, that same word room is translated as mansion. And in newer translations, it's translated as room or abode or dwelling place. The Greek word is monai, and that's not like dollar. It's monai, M-O-N-A-I, monai. And very, very interesting because, as I said, Jesus doesn't speak glibly or lightly. There's only two places this word is used for dwelling place or room or home, and it is both in John 14. 120 times in the New Testament, the word oikos is used for home. Now, many of you, I think, well, when you think of oikos, you think it's a Greek yogurt, but it's actually the common translation for house or home or room. But here, Jesus doesn't use oikos. He uses it everywhere else in the Gospels. Here, he uses monet. He wants to show there's a difference. You see, if Jesus said, in my father's house were many oikoses, instantly, the original hearers would have thought of their houses, which were mostly, in part, one large room where everyone would come and dwell. But instead, he uses this word monet, which, as I said, original translators have translated as mansions. So I'm just holding out the hope that Jesus used that word instead of oikos because we're going to have great big mansions, hopefully, with swimming pools in heaven. Anyway, in heaven, there is no sin, suffering, or evil. And it's spiritual, but it's also physical, so it is different. What do I mean by that? You see, when we think of heaven, we think of, like, as I said, Casper the Friendly Ghost, we're all sort of flitting around on clouds and spiritual. But also right at the top, we see that Jesus is there presently in a resurrected body. And we see in the Gospels when Jesus came back with his scars in his hand, in the room with disciples, he was physical, he ate. He ate fish. I don't know why he didn't go for a Big Mac, but the first thing he ate was fish. He could touch people, he could hug people. He could do things, he could pick up things, he wasn't spiritual, yet his body was different. How do we know this? Because he just starts popping up here, there and everywhere, playing jokes. They're in a locked room and poof, Jesus appears in physical body. So it is spiritual, but it's also physical, but it's different. And it's not just resurrected bodies that go there. We see in Genesis 2-4, there's a man called Enoch. And one day, Enoch has gone and taken his dog for a walk. And poof, suddenly, he's no more. And the translation is, is that he was taken up into heaven. And we see it again with Elijah. He goes out for a trot with Elisha one day. And a burning chariot of fire comes and takes his physical body up into heaven. So heaven is spiritual, but it's physical, so it is different. And if you're Marvel fans and you've watched the multiverse of madness or Spider-Man in the multiverse, it actually looks a little bit mind-boggling, but we see a precedent here with heaven. Heaven isn't in our physical realm. We know we could go and pally up with Elon Musk, jump on a spaceship and travel for millennia, and we would never break into heaven because heaven is in a different reality. It is 
different, which leads us on to our third question. Is there more than one heaven? Well, why do I say this? Because of a very weird verse that Paul talks to the church in Corinth. He says this, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to where the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. So he's like the third heaven, the best heaven. Is that where Becky and I will be while Jason and Linda are in the first heaven? <laughs> and Lee just about makes it into the second. The third heaven, what is that? And again, we've put this with tradition and culture. Many of you would have heard of the play called Dante's, Dante's Inferno, where we talked about the seven layers of hell. And there's a whole mythology and tradition about seven layers of heaven. What on earth is the third heaven? Do we have to work harder to get there? Well, actually, it's far simpler than that. Again, the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. So Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, when he talks about the third heaven, he would have known their understanding. You see, to an ancient Israelite's understanding, the first heaven is what we would call our atmosphere. So as we go outside into Northampton after this service and we look up and there's clouds and being in Northampton, probably rain, we would understand that as our atmosphere. The Jews will call this the first heaven. The second heaven, the Jews understood it to be a firmament, like a big dome where the sun and the moon and the stars hung. That was the Second heaven, so they understood the atmosphere here. Then above the atmosphere, there were planets and stars. And then the third heaven was where God was manifestly present, where God was manifestly present. And we often think about heaven as being up there, but to the Jews, the Jews had a saying that heaven was just above the stretch of their hand. They didn't understand it as being far out in space. Again, they understand it as being a different reality. So they thought they could literally reach out and heaven was just beyond. We see this in Genesis 28 with Jacob's ladder. He had a dream, do you remember? Decided to use a rock for a pillow, fell asleep. And he saw heaven descending just out of reach of a ladder out there. So this is what the third heaven was. Now let's get into the good stuff. I know some of you will be completely bored about that. But let's talk about the people who we will meet in heaven. The big question I often get asked, particularly by people who are exploring faith, and wondering whether they want to commit their life to this is when they die, will they recognise their friends and family in heaven? Now, unfortunately, there's no Matthew 52 verse 1 saying thou shalt recognise grandma when you die. <laughs> but again, if we do a little bit of detective work, we look through the Bible, we delve a little bit deeper like a detective finding fingerprints and clues, we can put together some precedent. Precedent, if you don't know, means something that is an example that can prove something else will happen. So let me take you to one of the weirdest verses in the Bible, and one that I find fascinating, in 1 Samuel 28, verse 14. Saul has just lost the Israelite kingdom to David, and he is going mental. He's lost everything. He's lost his anointing. The Spirit of God is not with him anymore. A prophet called Samuel, who sort of guided him and mentored him, and looked after him, had passed away and died, and Saul is just reeling. So he goes and he finds a witch in a place called Endor, which could also be translated as Wellingborough. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. I love you if you're former Libra. He goes and finds this witch in a place called Endor. And this is one of the verses that will completely mess with your theology. He goes to the witch and he says, I need you to call up Samuel. Of course, Samuel's dead. Samuel's not there anymore. I need you to call up Samuel. 
And the witch says, well, if I get found out for this, I'm going to be arrested. She doesn't know this is the king. And he says, just do it. I'll pay you well. And she calls up Samuel. First thing happens, Samuel pops up in the flames and he says, why have you called me up? Why have you called me up? Now, in Pentecostal tradition, we'll say, well, that wasn't Samuel, that was a demon. I don't think that. I don't think that was a demon. I think that was actually Samuel. And again, a really stark warning not to mess around with spiritual things we don't understand. Ouija boards and witchcraft that we see as part game, a bit of fun. There's real serious consequences to this stuff. Samuel looks at Saul, instantly recognises Saul. He knows Saul. So why have you called me up, Saul? Now all that to say there's precedent that he was recognisable. That although he died, he'd been laid in the ground, his spirit as Saul looked at him could see that it was Samuel. There's a parable in Luke 16, 19 to 31. Again, this is a parable. It's a story to explain something else. It's a metaphor. But Jesus talks about a rich man and a man called Lazarus, and they could recognise each other in the afterlife. And this is probably one of my favourite ones, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes up a couple of his disciples. I think it's Peter, James and John. And as they're just chilling at the top of the mountain, instantly Elijah and Moses appear and begin to talk with Jesus in his glorified state. Now, of course, Elijah and Moses have been dead centuries. Here's what I find fascinating is that Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, this is so cool. Let me put up a tent for you, for Elijah and Moses. Now, Peter had never met Elijah or Moses, but he could recognise them. So I wonder if this gives us a precedent that when we get to heaven, we won't just recognise people we knew on earth, but we'll recognise everyone. Maybe we can give Jonah a wide berth. We can give Adam the stink eye and Eve. But I think that's an interesting precedent that may be set there. We can recognise everybody after death. And again, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Jesus in his post-resurrection body, he was recognisable to 500 people at one time. But again, he's walking on the road to Emmaus after crucifixion with disciples, Cleopas and uh, his wife, and they don't recognise Jesus until Jesus made himself known. Now, I think it's a little bit different with Jesus because he's sort of God and I'm not and you're not, so maybe that's another one for another time. But what I do think this shows us is that after death, although we don't take anything with us, I do think we take our likeness and maybe our personalities as well. Maybe some of them will be cleansed a little bit, maybe need to be. Okay, another interesting question I get asked, and this comes from a verse in Matthew twenty-two thirty. Jesus arguing with the Pharisees. He made good fun of this oftentimes. And the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus into figuring out what happens in the afterlife. There's a woman who marries a brother and the brother dies. And Jewish custom, she then has to marry his brother and his brother. And this happens seven times. And I don't know why they ask what is wrong uh, sorry, why this woman is marrying all these different people. You should be asking what is wrong with this woman, the seven men she's gone through, killing them one after the other. But the question is this, she's got married seven times to seven brothers. In the afterlife, whose wife is she going to be? Is she going to do like Monday? It's like the Craig David song, isn't it, okay? Going to just, is it with Derek and then with Lee and then, no, you'll be with Jackie. And then with all the different people. And I can imagine Jesus standing there exasperated, sort of wiping his brow, just thinking, oh, just get on with it, shut up. And he said, listen, Matthew 22, 30. He says, you're thinking that we're going to be like how we are here in heaven. But when we get to heaven, we'll be like the angels who neither marry or have relationship. You won't have marriage. Now, for 50% of you, you're going, yes, 
And the other percentage of you where I am, I'm thinking, how on earth am I going to survive? <laughs> so what about my marriage? What about my marriage? Because for some of us, our marriage is so important. Those of us who are married have spouses. They're just so important. We can't think of doing life without our spouse. And if you can, come and see Pastor Lee at the end and we'll book you in for some counselling. But let me take you to a man called Wayne Martindale. He's a C.S. Lewis scholar and theologian. And many of you will resonate with this quote like I did. He says this. There are lots of no mores in heaven that we happily embrace, like no more tears, sorrow or death. But there is at least one no more we might like to have been consulted about, namely sex. Now, he went there, not me. Any nasty emails, you can send it to him. But Jesus said, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but will be like the angels in heaven. And I remember reading this thinking, poor angels, and then poor me, or so I thought. You see, as a teenager, I used to pray that Jesus would not come back until after my honeymoon. Anyone else? <laughs> Hallelujah. I didn't want to leave earth without experiencing God's great gift of sexuality. It was mostly a silly prayer, but it was nonetheless sincere. And I suspect that among those who grew up with Bible training, I was not alone. Amen, hallelujah. Why do we have this fear? <clears throat> it is because we think perhaps subconsciously that heaven will mean deprivation. But in truth, we will be uninterested in sexuality, not because it is emaciated, which means shriveled away, but because it is engulfed. And I think it hits on something really important here. We panic when we think of no spouse or no sex. And for some of you, that is your favourite thing to do. And if you're married, go for it. I'll stop there. <laughs> but we think heaven straight away. If there's no marriage, there's no sex, there's instantly deprivation. But we know heaven is in a place of pain or deprivation. And we know that because I've heard Pastor Jason sing. And if Pastor Jason is there and he'll be singing, there'll be no more pain. So we pray that his vocal cords get sorted out. But we think of heaven as deprivation. Let's go to the master himself, master theologian, second only after Jesus, C.S. Lewis. And I love this illustration. It paints so perfectly, I think, this whole thing of marriage and sex. He uses this illustration. He says, there is a small boy who is obsessed with chocolate. As he begins to grow up, he's told that the sexual act is the greatest bodily pleasure. Hearing this, the little boy then immediately asks whether you eat chocolate at the same time. Now, if you do, that's cool, but <laughs> we'll leave that there. When he's told no, he might think that the absence of chocolate is the dominant characteristic of sexuality. Let me read that again. It's important. When he's told you don't eat chocolate at the same time, he might think that the absence of chocolate is the dominant characteristic of sex. Unsuccessfully, you try to tell him that the reason why lovers don't bother about chocolate is that they have something far better to think of at that particular moment. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive things that are better than it. We are in exactly the same position. Many of us know the sexual life, but we do not, however, know, except in glimpses, the other thing in heaven that is far better. Does that make sense? And I read this and I was just blown away by that imagery and illustration. So as I read this, this is what I thought. The young boy doesn't know sex. He knows chocolate. That's not to say that the seed of sexuality is not within him. He's just prepubescent. He hasn't gone through puberty. It doesn't mean he's asexual. It doesn't mean he's uninterested in sex. He is just not yet. 
Say this boy's nine when he gets to 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, his focus will probably shift from chocolate to something else because the seed of sexuality is within him. So let's take this to death and heaven and life. Maybe heaven is like a spiritual puberty for us or death is like a spiritual puberty for us. We know in glimpses the Holy Spirit is within us. Heaven is within us. When Jesus came, his message was heaven is here now, but we see it only in glimpses. It is prepubescent. It is waiting to bloom. So death, therefore, is almost like a spiritual puberty for us. Does that make sense? Some of you, okay. Think on that quote. Death is a spiritual puberty for us. So when we get to heaven, the thing that so consumes us here, and it might not be sex, it might be something else, a different hobby, something that you give all of your life to. What C.S. Lewis is saying here is when we get face to face with the king in heaven, it will just lose its shimmer and its glamour and its glory because we will be faced with something better. So the helpfulness of this illustration is it helps us understand that heaven will not be less than, it will always be more than. And if we look at our relationships now and we're so obsessed with them, they are only just a shadow of what we can hope to expect when we get to glory in heaven. Okay? We're on the home run. Question I often get asked. Now remember this in school, year 10. Zealous Christian trying to get my friends to come to church. And I thought I'd do the evangelist thing and say, you know, do you know where you're going to go when you die? If you don't come to church, you're not going to go to heaven. You're not going to have all the fun things of heaven. You'll go to hell. And I remember one time, one of my best friends, still one of my best friends today called Jamie, he said, well, actually, if heaven's like the people at your church, I would rather go to hell. That's where, all the, that's where all the fun people are. All the fun people are in hell. And although he said it jokingly, there's a saying that 50% of truth is said in jest. And I think for many people, particularly if heaven has been framed as this movie heaven where we sit and sing with harps on clouds, they would much rather go to hell because that's what they perceive the fun people to be or where they perceive the fun people to be. So the question I get asked is, heaven has obviously been around for a very long time. Won't it be boring? Won't it be boring? If the disciples are in heaven now waiting in this intermediate state, as I said, it's like a very long travel lodge room. They've been there 2,000 years. Won't they just get bored? And then Peter doesn't help with this verse here in 2 Peter 3 verse 8. But do not forget this, one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. So actually, if heaven is in a different reality, in a different space, in a multiverse, in a different time, maybe time as we know it here is completely different there. Again, we don't know if this is allegory or metaphorical or if it is literal. But if this verse is literal, the disciples have literally been in heaven for two days. If your grandma who died 50 years, she's probably still taking her shoes off at the welcome mat. Won't heaven be boring? But if this isn't metaphorical, uh, sorry, if it is metaphorical and isn't literal, will heaven be boring? Now again, let's go back to that illustration of sexuality. If God, in all his goodness and all his creativity, created us and everything here on earth, do you not think the place where he resides with his people who love him will be fun? Do you not think it will blow everything we do here out of the water better than any Netflix series, better than any sports team except perhaps the Northampton Saints, better than anything we could possibly ever imagine? Heaven will not be boring. Last question, and this is a big one. I could do a whole sermon on this, but you'll be thankful to know I won't. Two minutes. 
If God loves everyone, why do only Christians go to heaven? Why do only Christians go to heaven? It's a good question, isn't it? And one I often get asked when I'm talking to people about faith. Joe, do you want to come and make me sound holy? Put down a pad. Why do only Christians go to heaven if God loves everyone, if he's a God of love? Well, I think, again, this is detriment to our picture of what heaven is. Because a heaven for Graham might be very different to a heaven for Lee. Or a heaven to me might be very different to a heaven for Greg. For me, it would be a Chinese all-you-can-eat buffet. And I keep my six-pack, which, as you can see, I'm working on. It's there somewhere. But if you're allergic to soy, Chinese buffet heaven probably isn't going to cut it, is it? And I think we think of heaven as this pleasure factory where we can just do whatever we want. And, and we think of God in heaven a little bit like the Wizard of Oz. And if you've seen the film, it's Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Lion and the Tin Man. I don't know if there's any others. They have to follow this yellow brick road to find the Wizard of Oz. And we almost have this picture in heaven where we can sort of nip into the throne room, do some worship, and then go and play video games. But this is not what the Bible paints, indeed, of heaven or the new creation. You see... If I could define heaven in just a few words, it would be this. Uninterrupted life with God. Uninterrupted life with God. In heaven, it will be impossible to avoid God because heaven does not contain God. He contains it. God won't be like the wisdom of ours behind a veil where you have to navigate tasks and turns. It will be so evident that heaven is a place where God is manifestly present. Heaven isn't contained by God. God contains it. So when we think of people wanting to go to heaven who don't know God, who haven't experienced the life that many of us have experienced, we automatically assume that people want to go to this place where actually maybe they wouldn't. Again, let's go to someone cleverer than me, John Ortberg, pastor and theologian. He says it like this. So becoming the type of person who wants heaven, which is uninterrupted life with God, is a problem because I often want freedom to do the things I don't want God to see. Should be a capital G there for you grammar kings and queens. Real heaven means life where my every thought, deed and word lies ceaselessly open to God for eternity. That's a scary thought. Have you ever committed a sexual sin? I bet you didn't do it while your mother was watching you. In order to commit sin and enjoy it, you have to be someplace your mother isn't. Once you're in heaven, there is no place to run for a quick sin. In other words, heaven is a place where people who want to sin will be miserable. A non-smoking restaurant is great if you're a non-smoker, but miserable for a nicotine addict. What brings joy to one creature may torture another. Again, C.S. Lewis once wrote that a heaven for mosquitoes and a hell for men could very easily be combined. As John Henry Newman once wrote, heaven is not for everyone, it is an acquired taste. It's quite philosophical, isn't it? But I think there's a real point there. And I think the problem for us, people who have this life with God, who've experienced Jesus' goodness, his saving grace, telling people who haven't experienced him, it doesn't always commute. I think of it like this, if you're a football fan and you are trying to explain to someone who has never seen football, never heard about football, what it is, what it does, and you start by explaining the offside rule, you're probably going to lose them really quickly. What you want them to do is go to a stadium and experience it. 
I think this is the chief thing we have as Christians. We are trying to guilt people into wanting heaven who have never experienced what God has done for us. See, the best thing we can do is show God to people, not scare them, not ask them what's going to happen when they go out and if they get hit by a bus, where they're going to go. What we need to do is introduce them to the God who changes lives. So to conclude, heaven. We can be thankful in all situations because the hope Jesus' followers have is that ultimately sin and death will be defeated. Although our mortal bodies will pass away, our spirits will go to heaven immediately after death. Heaven is the intermediate state where believers will reside until the final resurrection, where we will be given new bodies that replicate Jesus' resurrection body to live and reign with him in the new heavens and new earth. I'm just going to take a moment. Joe's going to continue to pray, but let me show you this video clip as we close and the team come back.